Hi, my name is Tony Thaxton. Like anyone else, I love a great album. But I also love those strange albums that might make you wonder how and why they even exist. But I'm not here to make fun of them. I'm here to celebrate them and tell their story. This is Bizarre Albums. Alias August. Today's episode, The Dukes of Stratosphere, 25 o'clock from 1985. For the next month of shows, it's Alias August on Bizarre Albums. Each week, I'll focus on an album that an artist released under another name. So let's get into it. Take the last train of Clarksville and I'll meet you at the station. You can be here by 4.30 because I've made your reservations. Don't be slow. I'm the self-titled debut album by The Monkees was released on October 10, 1966. It went to number one on the Billboard 200 and stayed there for 13 weeks. Eventually, that spot was overtaken by their second album, More of the Monkees. The first two Monkees albums were at the top of the Billboard 200 for a whopping 31 consecutive weeks. But I'm only seconds into the show and I'm already getting ahead of myself. When the Monkees first came onto the scene, they caught the attention of a 13-year-old from Swindon, Wiltshire, England, named Andy Partridge. Partridge already had an interest in music. He was a big fan of the Beatles, but he found the idea of learning to play the guitar intimidating. But the Monkees changed that for him. Partridge spoke about this in an interview with Contrast in 1990. And now, to read that quote, from Netflix's Love... And Song a Week, the Don't Stop or Will Die podcast. Here's Paul Rust. I really got into guitar. Uh, I like the Beatles, and I like the idea of being in a group, but the idea of learning the guitar scared me off. Then the monkeys came along. I was a little bit older, and I started getting interested in playing guitar. I thought this being in a group thing looks great. You all get to live in one house, you get to come down on a fire pole in the morning, and you can just turn up anywhere with your guitar plug-in and you sound great. This sounds highly romantic, I know, but I stole my first guitar from the after-school youth club for about two hours in the evening. There was a youth club there, and they had a guitar and an amplifier, a sort of made-in-Singapore thing, a horrible thing, so I stole it for a few months, played around with it for a while, and tried to learn the intro to Last Train to Clarksville, which I still haven't grasped. Partridge even submitted a drawing of Mickey Dolan's to Monkey's Monthly's Draw a Monkey competition. He ended up winning. He used the 10 pounds that he won to buy a Grundig tape recorder, which allowed him to record his early songwriting attempts. He wrote his first song while he was at Swindon College, which he soon dropped out of to start playing in bands for the purpose of meeting girls. By 1970, he was playing in a band called Stiff Beach. Several members came and went, but in 1972, bassist Colin Moulding joined the band, as did drummer Terry Chambers, and the band renamed themselves Star Park. A year later, they started taking things more seriously and changed their name to Helium Kids. During this time, Partridge was also working at a record shop in Swindon. It was there where he became obsessed with a new musical direction. He 
He was blown away after hearing the New York Dolls. Once again, in the Contrast interview from 1990, Partridge spoke about this. And once again, here's Paul Rust reading that quote. I suddenly just wanted to play three chords again and get out my mom's makeup and stuff. This change in direction also called for another name change. They nearly named themselves the Dukes of Stratosphere, but there was concern that it sounded too flowery and people would think they were a psychedelic group. In 1975, they officially changed their name to XTC. Shortly after, English disc jockey John Peel saw the band perform and asked them to appear on his BBC Radio 1 show. It was the first major national coverage for XTC, and it almost immediately resulted in interest from multiple record labels. Uh, so, on to tonight's first guest, and they're XTC. XTC would end up signing with Virgin Records in 1977. They quickly released an EP that October, titled 3D EP. Though it was only a three-song EP, other songs were recorded at these sessions, and those would end up appearing on their debut full-length, White Music, released just three months later. As if he was speaking directly to the Bizarre Albums audience, Partridge described the album as being Captain Beefheart meets the Archies. They would release their second album, Go To, in October of 1978. It reached number 21 on the UK Albums Chart. It received positive reviews, but it had no singles. The band's keyboardist, Barry Andrews, would leave the band shortly after its release, unhappy that the band didn't use any of the songs that he wrote, with Partridge claiming that they weren't right for the band. Instead of finding a new keyboardist, the band hired another guitarist, Dave Gregory. Gregory had actually been a guitar inspiration for Partridge back before he even knew how to play guitar. He used to watch Gregory play at church and youth clubs. Shortly after he joined the band, XTC would have their first charting single. But it wasn't a Partridge song. Bassist Colin Moulding wrote and sang Life Begins at the Hop. With Andrews now out of the band, Moulding wanted to stray away from the quirkiness of their earlier songs and do more straight-ahead pop. Life Begins at the Hop would reach number 54 on the UK singles chart. This new approach stuck with their next album, Drums and Wires, released in August of 1979. It was their first of their albums to also be released in the United States. Another molding song was chosen as the album's lead single. We're only making plans for Nigel. We only want what's best for him. We're only making plans for Nigel. Making plans for Nigel became a genuine hit spending 11 weeks on the UK singles chart, peaking at number 17. Drums and Wires was a real breakthrough for the band, 
reaching number 34 on the UK Albums Chart and number 176 on the Billboard 200. Success would follow with their next album, Black Sea, released in September of 1980. Black Sea would spawn three charting singles, including their biggest hit yet, Sergeant Rock, parentheses, is going to help me, which peaked at number 16 on the UK singles chart, and this time, it was an Andy Partridge song. Throughout 1980 and 1981, XTC was touring heavily as the opening act for the police. During this time, Andy Partridge's mental health started to deteriorate. He wanted to stop touring, but the label, the band, and their management wouldn't allow a stoppage. As a response, for their next album, Partridge decided to write songs with more complex arrangements so that it would be difficult to recreate live. The result was 1982's English Settlement. It would end up being the band's highest charting album, peaking at number 5 on the UK Albums chart. Its lead single, Senses Working Overtime, would become their first top 10 hit. the band was quickly back on the road again, and Partridge got worse, having panic attacks on stage. By April of 1982, XTC would finally stop touring. Soon after, drummer Terry Chambers would leave the band. 1983's Mummer would be his final album with the band, though he actually only plays on three of its songs. The band would never hire another permanent drummer after his departure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. XTC would get even more experimental in the studio for 1984's The Big Express. The band started showing some psychedelic influences around this time as well. Both Partridge and Gregory had a love of 60s psychedelic music. One month after the release of The Big Express, Partridge traveled to Wales with John Leckie, who had produced the first several XTC recordings, to produce an album for a new Virgin Records artist named Mary Margaret O'Hara. O'Hara quickly fired them because of religious differences. She was a devout Catholic, and they were not. Suddenly, Partridge and Leckie had some free time. Partridge asked him if he would want to make a psychedelic album. Leckie immediately said yes. Partridge then invited the rest of XTC to join. Dave Gregory's brother Ian would be the drummer for the recording. Virgin Records reluctantly gave them a budget of £5,000 to make the record. And for this project, they brought back a name they had once deemed too psychedelic sounding, the Dukes of Stratosphere. And on April 1st, 1985, April Fool's Day, the Dukes of Stratosphere released 25 o'clock on Virgin Records. What's so good about Swindon? The plan was to make a full-length album, 
but they ran out of time, resulting in just six songs. The album's opener, also titled 25 O'Clock, was written while the band was still waiting to find out if the label would in fact give them money to make the album. Up next is Bike Ride to the Moon. In the deluxe reissue CD booklet, Dave Gregory called the song a childlike ditty with comical, sped-up vocals. He says recording the voices at half speed was a struggle because they couldn't stop laughing. The band had an agreement to use the first takes of everything, barring catastrophe, but Gregory says there are a few instances where a second take did occur. The band members each took a new name for this project as well. Andy Partridge became Sir John Johns, credited with singing, guitar, and brain buds. Dave Gregory became Lord Cornelius Plum, credited playing mellotron, piano, organ, and fuzz tone guitar. Colin Molding became The Red Curtain, credited with electric bass and song stuff. And Ian Gregory became E.I.E.I. Owen, credited to playing the drum set. Even producer John Leckie became Swami Anand Nagara. He's actually credited under that name and his real name on the album. Side 2 kicks off with What in the World. It's the one song on the album not written by Andy Partridge, but by Colin Moulding, or should I say, The Red Curtain. But Moulding actually first came in with a different song that he thought would work for this project. Will your love have the fire and glow like on the big day? In the Deluxe Edition CD booklet, there's a quote from Moulding. And now, to read that quote, also from Netflix's Love and Song a Week, the Don't Stop or Will Die podcast, here's Michael Cassidy. I remember offering a big day at the first session and Andy saying, no, hang on, we'll do that for the next XTC record. And that's the way it went for me. I never actually wrote precisely for 25 o'clock, nor the subsequent sessions, but anything I had hanging about on tape was more or less crowbarred into the concept. Big Day would, in fact, end up appearing on the next XTC album, Skylarking, in 1986. So, what in the world appears here instead? Andy Partridge would later say that he felt this song was one of the best on the record.
Your Gold Dress was the first song written for this project, though it wasn't necessarily written for this project. Partridge first whispered the idea of the song into a tape recorder when XTC was mixing the Big Express. And this was when he started to realize that it was becoming hard for him to contain his desire to make a psychedelic record. The EP closes with its lone single, The Mole from the Ministry. Dave Gregory has called it one of his favorite recordings that XTC ever made. The song was written very quickly while Leckie was out picking up Mellotron tapes. Partridge started tinkering at the piano, and when Leckie returned, they immediately rolled on the song. The album was recorded and mixed in less than two weeks at Chapel Lane Studios in Hereford, England. Partridge even claims that the band returned 1,000 of its 5,000 pounds because they came in under budget. When the album was released in the UK, it saw twice as many sales as XTC's previous record, The Big Express. Virgin would promote the band with a lot of mystery behind them, and in interviews, XTC denied that they were actually the Dukes. Andy Partridge has said that it was the most fun that the band ever had in a recording studio. And the label was clearly happy as well, because they would all go on and do it again a few years later. The Dukes of Stratosphere returned in 1987 with Sonic Sunspot. But that is for another time. And that other time is this Thursday. That's right, it's a bonus episode week. You may have seen my initial social media posts saying that this episode was going to be covering both records, but I've actually decided to split this up. So check your feeds this coming Thursday, August 5th, for the Dukes of Stratosphere's Sonic Sunspot. Thank you for listening to Bizarre Albums. If you like the show, please subscribe and leave a review. It helps people find the show. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, at Bizarre Albums, and I'm at Tony Thaxton. You can also like Bizarre Albums on Facebook and visit BizarreAlbums.com. And if you still want more Bizarre Albums in your life, sign up for weekly bonus episodes of Bizarre Singles and more at Patreon.com slash Bizarre Albums. And as always, if you know of a Bizarre Album you'd like to hear featured, please tweet the show. I'd love to hear from you. You can even email me at bizarrealbums at gmail.com. My name is Tony Thaxton, and I'll see you next time on Bizarre Albums. Bizarre Albums.